Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 to 14. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 to 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. As uh, we begin this portion of our service, Uh, Let's start with a prayer. God, our helper by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Good morning. Uh, To be honest, I wasn't too sure about all of this. Um, I am a homebody, and so... I had all these concerns, like, it's going to be too cold, it's going to be too wet, it's going to be too uncomfortable. The chair that we have for outdoor services that we use, that my wife and I have, is too small for me, and all that stuff. But none of the other elders thought that way. Um, And they're the ones with the small children, so, you know, here we are, right? So... You know, one of the things that I did want to stress is even though we are outside, this is still a service to God. And so we want to take it reverently, want to give it up to God because he is the Holy One and we want to respond in worship as such. And so this is why we pray. So I didn't want to change anything about the service and I wanted to just do the service we do inside, just outside. And afterwards, of course, the changes, we'll have fellowship, food, raffles, prizes, and whatnot. But since we're out here, uh, let's continue to remember that God has given us two types of revelation. The God of the universe has given people two types of revelation, and one is natural revelation. It's what we see in nature. It's what you see around you. It's what we are surrounded by. In Psalm 19, I would remind you again that it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we see it readily right in front of us. What revelation means, it means disclosure. It's something that would have been otherwise unknown becomes known. When we experience nature, there is something about it that puts us in a state where at least one would struggle, or one would think that you would struggle with the notion of God. And I believe the Bible is absolutely right about everything, yes, but about this. In the beginning of the modern age, people's thinking shifted from unbelief in God being foolish to more and more now that belief in God is foolish. It's unsubstantiated. It's unscientific, etc. And I want you to kind of keep up with me. I'm going to try to do a little bit of a historical narrative with uh, the natural revelation bit before we get into our special revelation. Especially with the entrance of the Darwinian evolutionary theory, this gave credence to the idea that life can have no purpose. Nietzsche appreciated Darwin's theory of evolution because of its anti-metaphysical implications. 
not the social as aspects, but the biological ones. So Darwin wasn't the first to say that it was through evolu evolution that human beings emerged from the earth, but his contributions, as Francis Ayala would say, was that he showed that the complex organization and functionality of the living beings can be explained as a result of natural process or natural selection without any need to resort to a creator or any other external agent. So what he was doing is bringing this realm of science with his evolutionary theory that any claims of the metaphysical or supernatural contributions are unnecessary. So people who wanted to be an intellectual or noetic could do so without the baggage of, of uh, teleology. Teleology is the study of purpose. So for throughout human history, what people are wondering, what people are thinking about, what people, what keeps people up at night is what's my purpose? Why am I here? What should I do? And so with this, he thought that we can unhinge this baggage from people. I want to fast forward a few decades from Darwin, Nietzsche, and the like, and Marx. Uh, fast forward a few decades, and we see the theory of relativity by some German guy, right, being invented. Then we saw Edwin Hubble discover something quite extraordinary. He had this 100-inch uh, telescope, and it was, it was the Mount Wilson Observatory. And with this 100-inch telescope, it gave him the ability to observe something that no one had ever done before. And this is what he observed. The universe is expanding like the whole thing, rapidly. And this helped Einstein's theory of relativity a few years later in his 1915 paper in which his equations indicated that the universe was indeed expanding. Or another way he was thinking, another way you can look at the universe expanding is that the universe is actually collapsing on itself. He did not like thinking about that. He's like, I have these equations. These equations are good. Um, and I do not like that. I don't like the implications. This is significant because before that, it was quote unquote settled science that the universe was eternal. It's unchanging. And then people could kind of come to think that therefore it didn't have a beginning, which means time didn't have a beginning. And I honestly, I don't know how we settled on that. If time is linear or perceived linear, then there is a beginning. Anyway, physicists after that recognized that the notion with enough time anything was possible, like macroevolution or the forming of the earth, that theory, those theories could not be maintained. So God being unnecessary is an untenable topic, uh, even before it was hard to imagine. Like imagine I'm throwing just buckets of paint against the wall. I keep on throwing buckets of paint. And the theory is eventually you'll end up with a Rembrandt. That's very hard to put our minds around. But that's exactly what is being proposed. You continue to throw buckets of paint at a wall and you end up with a Rembrandt. Um, now we know that there wasn't even an infinite amount of time. Renowned atheists like Christopher Hitchens would say, like the best argument against atheism was this fine-tuning argument. So I'm going to explain that just in a nutshell. People used to believe that life could exist anywhere in the universe. 
There's aliens, there's life everywhere. We could actually have an infinite number of life forms in the universe, and it would be only a matter of time before we came into contact. And then we have all these movies depicting that, TV shows like Star Trek. And so we thought. Carl Sagan would famously say that all we needed for life was a star like the sun and an appropriate amount of distance from that sun. And so with more subsequent scientific discoveries, we found that this was actually untrue. There were dozens more criteria that were shortly observed, like water, base elements like methane, a rocky planet, a magnetosphere, right, that protects us from, a gravitational shield that would protect us from radiation and so on. So this is called the fine-tuning argument. It's also called the Goldilocks factor. That meant everything had to be just perfect for life to even exist. And if you thought that Rembrandt took precision painting this universe and homing in on Earth is far more intricate, it's so delicate where if a measurement was just a few degrees off, life could not exist. And while it's true that atheism has been on the decline in the past number of deca decades, more and more people are considering themselves to be agnostic. Agnostic means that you just don't know. A is not and Gnostic is uh, knowledge, so I just don't know. But because we know it is a fact that the universe is an effect, that means the universe must have had a cause. You can't have an effect without a cause. And this is what people discover with the Big Bang. This is an effect. That's why it's expanding. If I threw a ball and you took a picture midway flight, you knew that something must have happened before the picture of the mid-flight. We've established that in the law of causality, even before the hard sciences had evidence or the evidences that we have today, philosophers from 400 BC knew that this universe was an effect and must have a cause. Plato would gather that this world must be a lower and imperfect form of the greater form because you are projected from something. And even in the allegory of the cave, which he wrote in the Republic, he would acknowledge that the only way to know that there was a reality outside of what we know here is that someone has to go outside, look at the outside, come back, and tell us. That's the only way you would know. Otherwise, everyone here is just looking at shadow puppets against the cave wall. Reality what we imagine it to be is far more colorful, more beautiful, and more awesome. Great minds from old knew that the world was a mere shadow of a re what reality should be. But there was, there's no way of knowing, is there? How do you know? How do you really know that there is something out there? Unless you've already seen the pristine. That's why philosophers for thousands of years would imagine this. If I say to you, imagine a triangle, it's a very basic shape, it's a three-sided polygon. Imagine a triangle. Now I want you to draw that on a piece of paper. You would then start to gather, my drawing is more imperfect, it's less perfect than what I had pictured in my mind. So this is what people like Plato would say. From our heads to actual paper, but even before it got into our heads, there must be a pristine, there must be a, an ideal form of the triangle. That's how we know what a triangle is. 
And so you can imagine the Greeks back in the ancient world, all they would do is talk about the stuff like this, right? A few hundred years later, there was a man named Philo of Alexandria. He would take this line of reasoning. He's like, this is good, but let me take that line of reasoning to show that the form of reasoning must have come from a clearer, more prehistoric reason that you have now, which means that Plato, you're great, you're awesome, you're smart, but you got your idea of reasoning from someone even before that. You go even back further to the ideal form. So this is not a thinking or philosophy that's new. Science is, or knowledge is from somewhere, perhaps even waiting to be discovered, but it's somewhere. We don't discover non-existent things. That's not science. That's lunacy. And so Philo argues that even the great thinkers that shaped the modern world at the time got their ideas from a previous, and if I may, more pure form of knowledge. And he argued that it was Moses. Moses received his knowledge directly from God. God is the purest and highest form of knowledge passed down information to Moses, which then subsequently got passed down to us. And even today in this country where our laws are based off of Mosaic laws. If even modern scientific discoveries point us back to a beginning with a creator that points us to a telos or a purpose behind creation, the real question is, what is your purpose? And the Creator gave to Moses and the prophets that followed what that purpose is. This is what we call special revelation. Natural revelation points us to God. Special revelation shows us why we were created. And this is why of all the books that have ever been written, the Bible is the most scrutinized, the most criticized, the most challenged book that, have, that has ever to been written, but also it is the most printed, sold, and read book of all time without even a close second. It's the treasure we Christians hold on to precisely because it is the special revelation that God has given his people so that they are not lost in a rapidly dying universe. And the universe is coming to an end. From the very beginning, the book of Genesis shows us that we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's something inside of us that we know that we were created for something more than the temporal. And that's what we have been put inside of us. It's from there we see that even though humans were created in God's image, that means in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, having the law of God written on our hearts, our first parents, the first man and woman created through the temptation of Satan, went against the commandment of God. And in eating what was forbidden, fell from the state of innocence into a state of guilt. This is why thinkers from the earliest records that we have, we could find, know that this basic truth, that life here is not perfect. You might say to that, duh, obviously we know this life isn't perfect. But think about that statement, life isn't perfect. Think about it. If life isn't perfect, then we have in our being a sense of the perfect. 
even if we're off on the details on what this perfect exactly is, the sense of perfect is in each person, and every person knows that we are far from this perfect. God reveals to us in his word that the perfect is him, and that we are made in his image for him, and that's why we long for that perfection. But not only because of Adam and Eve, we have individually sinned and lost communion and pleasure with God. And instead, we have then earned his displeasure and wrath. And the punishments in this world are severe. They include blindness of the mind, the hardness of the heart, vile affections, a severing of society and community, ultimately leading up to death itself. And death is the ultimate punishment because it not only separates us from those we love, because we were made for community, it separates us eternally from God. And with that separation, we are guaranteed by God grievous torments of the body and soul without rest in hell forever. And then as sinners, we would complain, that's not fair. That's not fair. But we would do the same when a work of our creation doesn't satisfy us or fulfill what it was designed to do. We don't hold in our garage a lawnmower that doesn't mow. And if it is regarding us, we must be go beyond that. The Bible shows us that we are enemies with God. Not only, do, not only do we not do what we ought to do, we do the things that God hates. We steal, we covet, we lie, we lust, and the list goes on. And people might be confused. Why do you say we are enemies? I didn't do anything personally to God. Well, that's the same as saying if I take a child here and I beat that child and then the parent comes to help, he's like, wait, 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 I have no issue with you, parent. The parent would have no idea what you're talking about. It would not compute. Out of sheer mercy, though, out of sheer mercy and by his grace, he offered us enemies and sinners, a mediator. And this mediator would be from the perfect. He would be from the ideal. Otherwise, he would not have been a mediator at all. And through this mediator, God would freely provide life and salvation. This is the good news that has been delivered to you, that Christ died for your sins and it was in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ rising from the dead, which we celebrate every Sunday and every Easter. Jesus Christ rising from the dead became the first fruits of all those who would also die to rise again. And, if, and it's this incredible thing that has been a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles because this knowledge can only be, gi be given through the power of God. And it's not a knowledge of salvation that's unreasonable or illogical, but it's that it's unattainable without God. It's the promise that the creator who made this universe that is perishing will fashion us with bodies that is imperishable. And if this sounds too fantastical, but I want to remind you, it's what humans have longed for. 
humans have longed to defeat death, to sing and shout, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But we were never able to do so. But God did what man could only ever fail to do. He took the sting of death away and gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for 2,000 years, the church has believed this. And yes, there have been imposters, wolves, charlatans who claimed to be of Christ but was not of him. And yes, it was the word of God that revealed the true colors of these hucksters. But God has maintained this church through the ages. And the church has been plowing forward, gathering to herself believers from across the four corners of the earth. When our Lord Jesus ascended, he verily promised that he would return again. And until then, we have been given instructions to carry out, to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Christ. Finally, being able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, glorify God and enjoy him forever, thereby fulfilling our telos. John Piper would famously say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we finally are able to see through the lie that obeying God is a killjoy, that following Christ is mindless, or that belief in a supreme being is unintellectual, then we are free to worship God and enjoy him forever because God is the source of joy. And we see that everything around us shows us what a gracious God he truly is. Your life, each and every single one of your life personally, individually, your life is evidence of God's mercy and grace. So in this latter portion, okay, so now what? Remember when the Apostle Paul teaches, it's most, mostly doctrine first and then application. So when he gives the application, know that it's based on the doctrinal issues that he's brought up for the last 15 chapters. And this morning, there are five applications. Then, what a Christian is called to do. Number one, it's be watchful. Be watchful. This is from the Greek word gregario. This is where we get the name Gregory. And it means to stay awake, to be alert. It's a calling for a continuous state of alertness. Not only is Christ to come again, but we are to stay alert in the spiritual sense. Paul isn't talking about the physical sense only here. But he's telling Christians that our life must be in a state of alertness. We cannot let our guard down. We've got to be awake. Even though Satan's head was crushed by Christ, we must watch out that his tail does not sweep our legs from under us and take us down with him. So this is something that you will notice in the five things I will mention. If the Corinthians were doing these five things, then these past 15 chapters would not need to have been written. It's precisely because they weren't doing these things that Paul had to point out each issue. And spoiler, they didn't get with the program, and that's why there's a second letter to the Corinthians. And this here was part of the Corinthian behavior. They were always in a drunken stupor. Many times, if not both, most, it was physical too. They were drunk all the time. They even took the Lord's Supper as a time where they would come together and get bombed. In chapter 11, verse 21, it says, one goes hungry and the other one gets wasted. That's the Eugene Standard Version. But 
This is why, if you listen to our podcast, I have things to say about things that will get you inebriated. Anything that gets you out of a state of alertness is dangerous. And when you're not alert, you're not alert to Satan. You're not alert to temptation. You're not alert to each other's needs. You become then useless. This is a terrible situation for the Corinthians. How can they love God and love one another if they can't even be cognizant of the things two inches from their face? But this is not a, only a call for physical alertness. It's for spiritual alertness and awareness. If you're not learning biblical principles, maybe you've heard that all you need is Jesus, that kind of doctrine. You don't know what the whole Bible is and that the whole Bible was given for our benefit to equip us for every good work. You have no idea what's good and bad and you get your feet swept up from right under your nose. You need to know what the Word of God is teaching you. It's because you don't know you're in a drunken stupor and every wind of doctrine just wherever way it blows, you sway. Being in a drunken stupor is a very dangerous state for a Christian. And this is why Paul says in chapter 5, Do you not know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that there is no such thing as accepting a little sin? Don't you know that a li little poison ruins the whole drink? In chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Judgment requires sobriety, and even more so an awareness or alertness to the law. Imagine a judge drunk out of his mind, handing out sentences and judgments. That would be a great evil. There are five more do you not know statements in that section, implying that Christians and the Corinthians needed to be reminded, or they really didn't know. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There was a recent sitcom that I watched some years ago where a little boy is talking with his father saying, it doesn't seem fair that everyone won't get into heaven. And the father wanted to reassure his child, of course everyone's going to go to heaven. And it took two seconds for this kid to ask another question. What if someone causes like bad problems though? Oh, then he responded, the father responded, oh, he'll, he'll get kicked out. Oh, what if, what if he tries to get back in then? He can't get back in because there'll be this great big wall of fire. The question is, by what standard will people attain eternal life? What is the standard of righteousness? What's the standard of perfect? How do we know what it is? And so God gave us that standard, and we all failed. But because of Christ and faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is why Paul goes on to verse 11. After he reads that, and such were some of you, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. Do you not know that Christians no longer live in unrighteousness, but are commanded to live righteously? How do you know that you are then? And so Paul goes on to teach doctrine so that they know all the way until chapter 15, verse 34, where he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The apostle Peter warns us too in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I mentioned in a previous sermon that I had learned that there are three big things that will get you. The lust of the eyes, greed for gain, and pride. Where is that from? It's from 1 John 2.16, where it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's the pride of life that got Satan expelled from heaven, and it's the pride of life that makes us think that we are God's dictating what is up and down, what is left from right, what is male and female, and so on. The point is that we get to dictate instead of God. That's what people want. That's the pride of life. And the multitude of people are falling for this lie. We do not get to dictate reality, and we never have. Reality is dictated to us. It's God who says, let there be life. Number two, stand firm in the faith. People who sway whichever way the wind blows are the least admirable, no? Bandwagon jumpers. They like the Yankees one year and the Net Red Sox the next. I would imagine people like that to be hated by both Yankee and Red Sox fans. But people who lay roots down, those people are admirable. Once you've established your faith, Paul is saying, don't waver. Stand fast. Once you recognize you're a soldier, don't run away from the battle. The Corinthians were going wherever the tide would take them. Oh, this doctrine means this? Sure, okay. Oh, now it means something else? Fine. Oh, we're just going to call it a living document, and it can mean whatever we want it to mean? Sure. Paul is telling Christians to stand firm in the faith. Jude also tells his readers to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints because God's word is unchanging. What meant what it meant 2,000 years ago means the same thing today because if it were changing, it wouldn't be immutable. It wouldn't be perfect. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says to fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And the Corinthians were not doing that. They went, to the Jew they went with the Jewish notion that you needed signs of power. That's why Christianity is weak. But then they also went with the Greek notion that it's all about knowledge. So Christianity is foolishness. So Paul writes from the very beginning, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul admonishes them to the point where he says in chapter 3, verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone, of, uh, anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, 
Let him become a fool that he may become wise. If you think you're wise in your own eyes, abandon that wisdom because it's not wisdom. Become a fool then in your eyes. Become desperate and seek out true wisdom only to be found that is outside yourself and it's in God. There were a lot of things that seemed foolish to the world that the Corinthians didn't want to accept back then. In chapter 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If Christ hasn't been raised, then we would be found misrepresenting God. We of all people should be pitied. Why even call yourselves Christians if you don't believe in the resurrection? So when we compromise what's clear in the scripture for fear of what others might say or because of our own selfish desires and egos, we cut ourselves off from the gospel. So to do both things so far, staying alert, standing firm, you need to know the gospel. You need to know the word of God. That's the key. When you can't do either of these things, you know that you were not in the word enough. If you haven't gotten the flow of the commands yet, here's the third command. Act like men. These are military commands. I thought perhaps this one might catch some flack in some church circles today, but I didn't think it would as much here. Act like men has at least two dimensions to it. It's from the Greek word endrizomai, which literally means to act manly. He's talking to both men and women in Corinth. So So is he telling everyone to dress like and talk the same? It's obviously not. Just read chapter 11 chapter 14 he prohibits women from doing certain things and men from doing certain things Paul is drawing upon a common phrase that's based off a stereotype which we perhaps universally know in all cultures and it's the concept of manning up man up is something you would tell someone when you want them to stop their belly aching and be courageous Uh, last year at the height of death rates in New York City because of COVID, my in-laws got COVID. They all got COVID. Uh, my mother-in-law was hospitalized, and it was a pretty scary time for us. So she was hospitalized on a Thursday. But my wife had gone to see them that Tuesday, so two days before. My wife spent hours with all of them in a small apartment where they were hacking it up. They had a fever, and it was already bad. But she came back, and she was fine. I thought it was nearly impossible for her not to have COVID. She was definitely exposed, but she shrugged it off, you know. A few nights later, though, I couldn't sleep. I felt like I was having problems breathing, too. And, and back then, I was in a much unhealthier state than I am now. I'm not that great right now, but back then, it was way worse. Like, I'd go down the stairs, and I would be huffing and puffing, like, down the stairs, okay? And so uh, it was that kind of bad. Anyway, it was really uncomfortable for me to breathe at night, especially at nights. I thought it was noticeable. So one night I turned to my wife and I said, I think I might have COVID because I feel like I can't breathe right. So she turned to me and she told me to man up. Okay, that's the, that's the, that's the story. Um, so I just went to sleep and I was fine. Um, It was that time when tests weren't readily available like they are now, so we just quarantined for two weeks, and it turns out I was fine. Anyway, I guess she was right. I just needed to man up after all. But andrizomai can mean exactly that, to man up. Paul is telling Christians, yeah, life is going to be rough at times, especially as a Christian, and you need to andrizomai. You need to man up. You need to stop whining and man up. 
there's a second dimension that I mentioned about um, in Drizomai. And by dimension, I mean that it's basically the same thing, but if you put it on a different slightly light, change a little angle, you can see another dimension to it. And it means to grow up. There is a difference between a man and a child. And when you tell your son to act like a man, it doesn't mean that your son should start driving your car. You most likely use that phrase to tell your son to act more mature. And that's what endrizomai can and also does mean. It means to grow up, act mature. So in both dimensions, endrizomai means to be courageous and not fearful, mature and not childish. In chapter 14, verse 20, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. If anything be infant, if anyone, if anything be infants when it comes, if anything be infants when it comes to evil, but in your thinking be mature. And he was talking about tongues and the abuse that the gift was used for. They were acting like babies, falling for stuff like this, and abusing the gifts like they were doing. In chapter 13, Paul would say, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And what's the next verse? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You're childish, you're immature, because you don't know. So how do you grow up? In 1 Peter 2.2 2 it says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Here again on the third point, what's the common thread? You must know the special revelation. You must know the word of God. So how do I stay alert, stand firm in the faith, Act like men. I have to know the word of God. Here's the fourth point. Be strong. Now that we know the common theme is being carried through through all the imperatives, how are we to become strong? I'll put it another way. Where does true strength come from? The people in Corinth wanted to be the big man on campus. They were puffed up. In chapter 4, verse 6, they were puffed up over against each other. Strength, they saw, was overpowering the other person. Paul doesn't ever acknowledge that as strength. Instead, he calls that being puffed up. And being puffed up has the imagery of a faker, someone not strong trying to show off as if they were strong. Paul goes on to say that anything that they have has actually been given to them. So why are you then going around boasting as if you did not receive what you have, anything? And everything that you have, you have received. You didn't conjure it up. Job was wise because he acknowledged this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Corinthians thought that arrogance and egotistical behavior were shows of strength. They talked a big game, but they had nothing to show for it. In maybe one of the most sarcastic points of the letter Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And with that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul is deriding their conceit but at the same time showing the irony of having such boastful hearts. And in the end they thought they were outpacing the apostles and the logic would then go even to thinking that they've outpaced God. But the reality was that they weren't strong at all. They were incredibly weak. They were so undisciplined that Paul had to teach them what self-discipline was. 
in 924 says do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it discipline yourselves discipline yourself to attain the goal you lift to get stronger you diet to get healthier you sleep well to recover you do all these basic physical things why not can you then translate it to your spiritual life so how can you be spiritually strong well what does the word of god say word of god says in ephesians 3:14 for this reason i bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being real strength is from god and through his holy spirit this is shown throughout the scriptures even samson known for his physical strength how was he strengthened he was strengthened by the power of the holy spirit so just like paul pray that you receive strength through the holy spirit and here's the fifth and final point which is really just covering the prior four let all that you do be done in love do all these things in love paul uses military terms for all four imperatives but he covers it with a command to do all these things in love it's love that god showed when he gave his only son for us it's the gift of love that we received when the fullness of god came upon this earth as a baby and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life we have received his love and as his children we do all these acts also in love so this is the exhortation be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong do all these things in love the holiness the unity and especially the maturing that we do as christ followers is done in love let's pray Lord, we thank you for this morning that we can gather outside where we get to see the natural and special revelation come together. Lord, we ask God now that your Holy Spirit would give us the power that we need to exercise the faith that you've given us. Oh God, help us to live out lives according to the purpose that you've given us, thereby receiving in full joy and peace the comfort that you give us. And so, Lord, we lift up this time to you. Let's take this time to pray and lift up to God our prayers. And pray as the Holy Spirit directs you. What has God directed you to do? What is it that you must do even more so as he gives us these four imperatives and to do it in love? Let's pray, God, pray that God would strengthen you to fully commit to live a life of faith and thereby live in full abundance of joy and completion. Let's pray.